Hey folks, this is John Lawrence. I'm a CRNA and the producer of the podcast, and in this episode, I discuss the coronavirus pandemic with pediatric cardiac anesthesiologist Jonathan Meserve, MD. The audio podcast will be Dr. Meserve walking us through his PowerPoint presentation, which is timed with the audio and can be found on the website linked in the show notes. At the end of his presentation, we candidly discuss the impact both professionally and personally of the unfolding pandemic. You'll hear Dr. Meserve walk us through the origin of the virus, common terms used to describe it, how it compares to previous severe acute respiratory syndrome or SARS viruses, its worldwide spread, signs and symptoms and treatment of active COVID-19 disease, recommended containment measures for individuals and organizations, and the macroeconomic implications of the worldwide pandemic. Dr. Jonathan Meserve completed medical school at Oregon Health and Science University in 2010. He completed a double residency program in pediatrics, Boston Children's Hospital in 2015, and anesthesiology at Brigham and Women's Hospital in 2015, prior to his fellowship in pediatric anesthesiology, also at Boston Children's Hospital. He currently serves as a pediatric cardiac anesthesiologist with Spectrum Health Partners in Portland, Maine, providing care at Maine Medical Center and Scarborough Surgery Center. And with that, let's get to the show. All right. Well, Dr. Jonathan Meserve, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. First time. So we're going to walk through a presentation that's titled COVID-19 that you gave last week at Grand Rounds at Maine Medical Center for the Department of Anesthesiology. Uh, this is a talk that will best be listened to through navigating directly to the website. This You may be hearing this just straight audio on the podcast, but there is a PowerPoint that is synced with the audio on this um, uh, conversation that we're going to have. So if you want the full effect, go to the website. We will, as best as possible, communicate what we're seeing on the slides for those of you who are just listening to the audio. But the PowerPoint has lots of visual aids, lots of pictures, and will make a lot more sense if you navigate to the website and watch it live. Um, so with that, Jonathan Meserve, I'm going to uh, hand it over to you. Thanks, John. I appreciate you letting me come and speak to you. So this was a talk I gave, as mentioned last week, as a Grand Rounds, and started a couple of weeks ago. Um, I was very interested in some of the side stories surrounding COVID-19, a lot of the implications both in our research fields as well as to the world economic market, and I started putting some of the pieces together. And as I did, uh, this has really snowballed into a total different issue. And now we're in a world of economic shutdown, we're into a world of quarantine, and many of us unfortunately know individuals that are sick with the disease at this point in time. However, I do think some of the aspects of this talk are still pertinent, so I was asked by John to share it with you today. To start, uh, as a disclosure, I have no financial incentive uh, in any of the products or uh, things mentioned in this talk here today. A lot of people would ask what my qualifications are to give this. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not an infectious disease expert. I'm a pediatric anesthesiologist that has an interest in public health, and I had an interest in some of the surrounding topics of COVID-19. That said, I hope you can bear with me and understand the parts that I find interesting about this disease. So this is my disclaimer. So there's a lot of new information evolving almost hourly with regard to COVID-19. So the information I'm going to present to you, I believe, is accurate. But the new information is dynamic. And as such, we're going to find that some of the things we think we know now are going to be, in fact, wrong. As my ultimate disclaimer, this does not and should not replace or change the safety practices or guidelines provided by your home institution or the CDC. For your safety and for others, please strictly adhere to your institutional policies and procedures for COVID-19. 
We're going to quickly mention a glossary of terms here that you'll hear mentioned in this PowerPoint. SARS refers to the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome from 2002 to 2004. MERS was another novel coronavirus that uh, is the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome that began in 2012 and exists at low levels today. You'll hear the term SARS coronavirus 2 or SARS CoV 2, also the 2019 novel coronavirus. These are the viruses that give rise to the disease state COVID 19, named for the coronavirus disease identified in 2019. You're likely already familiar with the term person under investigation. These are individuals who may have the disease but have not yet tested positive. So let's review our outline. We're going to go back in time to look at a novel coronavirus. Then we're going to take the time to talk about coronaviruses as a whole. And if you'll humor me, we're going to talk a little bit about flighted mammal epidemiology, immunology, then we're going to talk about COVID-19 itself, some of the precautions that we can take to protect ourselves and our patients, as well as some of the treatment strategies. And ultimately, we're going to talk about the implications for the world. Our story is going to start here, in the Guangdong province of China in 2002. Here we're going to go to a live animal and seafood market, commonly referred to as a wet market. These markets can be found throughout Asia. They're very popular because there's large demand for what's known as warm meat. That's meat that has been freshly slaughtered. And you can find all sorts of animals in close quarters in these markets. They include reptiles, avians, mammals, amphibians. They're both alive and dead. And you can see that some of the sanitary conditions there um, are lacking. There are a lot of close quarters. There is uh, not good washing. There are not good facilities available. And as such, in 2002, a new coronavirus was found that ultimately was linked to the painted civet. This is a mammal that's prized both for its meat as well as for some medicinal purposes. And this gave rise to the SARS virus of 2002 and 2003. SARS ultimately infected over 9,000 people and killed over 900. It quickly spread from the Guangdong province to the capital, Beijing, where it then leapt throughout the world, infecting over 28 countries, with China, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Canada being those most highly affected. The World Health Organization has provided a document, a consensus document on SARS, and we're going to review this to talk about coronavirus spread and also to discuss some viral terminology that I think is helpful to understand the current COVID-19 pandemic. This slide here demonstrates both the incubation and infectious period for SARS coronavirus. The incubation period refers to the time from exposure of symptoms to the, uh, excuse me, the time from exposure of the virus to symptom development. As you can see here, Though you can have symptoms as quickly as one day after exposure, the vast majority took place in four to five days. Additionally, almost all people had symptoms that developed by two weeks after exposure, hence our current quarantine recommendations for COVID-19. The infectious period refers to that timeline when people who are affected can infect others. 
And so we see here that with SARS, the peak infectious period actually occurred in the second week, around days seven or eight. We also learn from this virus that there are individuals known as super spreaders. And super spreaders are individuals that have very high viral particle offload that can infect a number of individuals in the community, far more so than the general population. We've seen this in other diseases as well, such as influenza and tuberculosis. Um, and these super spreaders may be keys to furthering the virus within the community. Now we're going to talk about a term called the R-naught, which is merely a quantitative measure for how infectious a virus can be. It simply refers to if an infected individual has a disease, how many others can they infect with the same virus? So for example, a virus that's not particularly infectious like hepatitis C, the R-naught is approximately two, meaning that for every individual who has the disease, they will infect two others. Contrast this with measles, the most infectious disease known uh, to humans, and we see that with an R-naught of 18, every individual infected can infect up to 18 others, provided we don't take steps to quarantine it, provide vaccines, treatment, etc. The R-naught of SARS is approximately three. The term most people seem to focus on is the case fatality ratio. This is simply the number of deaths over a specified period of time from the disease, divided by the number of individuals who contract the disease in the same time frame. This gives you a ratio, multiply it by 100, and you obtain a percent. So roughly speaking, this is the number of individuals who are infected who will die from the disease. For SARS, it was approximately 11%. The data from China showed us that SARS also affected different age groups disproportionately, with older patients having a much higher CFR than younger patients. But you can also see that, depending on the country, there was a very different range in CFRs. So who was infected most commonly? Well, healthcare workers were uh, as much as 21% of individuals infected by SARS, and in Canada, it was even over 40%. Male gender posed a higher risk than female gender. Household contacts with individuals who were affected by SARS caused the, uh, were li a likely source for infection, and increasing age put you at risk for contracting it as well. There were interesting implications to SARS in the way that we can prevent the spread of disease. Like most viruses, hand washing is very important to curb the spread. What was novel about SARS as a coronavirus was that regular masks were not able to stop viral transmission, and the use of an N95 mask was necessary to prevent the spread of disease. When you combine contact precautions with good hand washing as well as an N95 mask, we saw the greatest reduction in healthcare worker infection. Groups in Canada then looked at their healthcare workers and those that contracted the disease after their epidemic. And they looked to see what procedures do they do that in fact cause transmission to healthcare workers. And what they saw was that there were a couple of procedures that are done in the healthcare setting that are highly likely to contract the disease. These include intubations, bag mass ventilation before intubation, as well as uh, positive pressure ventilation, such as BiPAP, CPAP. And for these reasons, we've now come up with new guidelines for COVID-19 and for SARS that recommend trying to avoid BiPAP or CPAP and said proceeding to intubation, and when intubating, to attempt a rapid sequence intubation to prevent excessive bag mass ventilation. 
The idea is that bag mass ventilation, CPAP or BiPAP, can in fact aerosolize the droplet particles, leading to healthcare worker infection and spread. Interestingly enough, the data showed that performing EKGs was also associated with high likelihood for healthcare worker contraction of the virus. And it's unclear to me if there's something specific to EKGs or perhaps the individuals who are performing the EKGs did not have the necessary education in personal protective equipment. I'd like to review the protocols that we've now put in place at our own institution for intubating patients with COVID-19 because I think they can prevent the spread to others. And this is really based from what we learned from SARS. So we recommend proceeding with a rapid sequence intubation, having the most skilled um, laryngoscopist perform the procedure. After intubation is complete, what we do is we attach an AMBU bag with a HEPA viral filter and a PEEP valve on it to try to both recruit the lungs and to prevent the viral particles from being aerosolized. We also, before we ventilate, we go ahead and inflate the endotracheal tube cuff. We try to avoid suctioning and we do try to avoid positive pressure ventilation with the rapid sequence intubation. For these reasons, we think we can decrease the risk for aerosolization healthcare worker infection. Now this study in Canada also showed us some interesting information in terms of breakdowns in personal protective equipment in transmission to healthcare workers. And they found that the most common breakdown in PPE was in fact a lack of eyewear. And for those individuals who didn't wear eyewear, they were much more likely to contract the virus, giving credit to the, or credence to the fact that perhaps the virus itself can become airborne, land on our eyes or on our face, and then inadvertently can infect healthcare workers subsequently. We're going to shift gears now. We're going to talk a little bit about coronaviruses as a whole. So coronaviruses are positive sense single-stranded messenger RNA viruses. They belong in the realm of riboviria. And within this, they exist within four major types, alpha, beta, gamma, and delta coronaviruses. We're no strangers to coronaviruses. In fact, there are four coronaviruses that exist within our society infected many of us and cause about 25% of the common colds that we experience. We likely have all been infected by these at one point or another. But since 2000, there have been three novel beta coronaviruses. The SARS coronavirus 2, which causes COVID-19, SARS coronavirus, which we just discussed, and the MERS coronavirus, which has a CFR of nearly 33%. All coronaviruses share a similar exterior appearance. They have large spike glycoproteins. They've got the single-stranded positive sense messenger RNA in, on the inside below their nuclear envelope. And they have these N proteins which bind the MR messenger RNA and protect it and allow for transport. And when we look at these viruses under a transmission electron microscope, we can see these large spike glycoproteins on the exterior surface, giving it its crown-like appearance, hence the name corona or Latin for crown. So now we're going to move to a different region in China in a different time. We're going to go to the Hubei province in November 2019. And we're going to move to the city of Wuhan. Wuhan is the ninth most populous city in China. It has 19 million people in the metro area, 11 million within the city itself. And by comparison, New York City is just over 20 million people. It's regarded as the academic, cultural, and economic center of central China. And here in Wuhan, we're going to go to one of these wet markets, or seafood and live animal markets. 
And in November of 2019, some animal was carrying a virus that either infected other animals, which humans came in contact with, or this original animal ended up infecting humans. This is known as a spillover event and represents a novel zoonotic infection within the population. Once this individual or individuals was infected, they gave it to several others, who in turn gave it to healthcare workers, gave it to many more, and then has led to our global pandemic today. Question becomes, what was this animal that started this? Where did this coronavirus come from? We don't know, but there are a number of animals that were sold at this market. There were a number of different poultry species, donkeys, sheep, pigs. By some accounts, there were wolf cubs, hedgehogs, badgers, foxes. And there were likely a number of other uh, dead reptiles or live reptiles as well. And some have postulated that it was in fact the Chinese crate, a snake, which has been known to have coronaviruses, that may have in fact caused this infection. The coronaviruses located or isolated from the Chinese crate, however, don't match the signature of COVID-19. And furthermore, I don't believe there is known transmission zoonotically of coronaviruses from snakes to humans before. This led others to suspect that it was in fact pangolins, which are highly prized both for their meat and medicinal purposes in China. And there have been many coronaviruses found in pangolins that do have the potential for zoonotic spread. But ultimately, people have implicated the bat. The bat was responsible both for the MERS and the SARS epidemic, and it's highly suspected that it was the vector for COVID-19. So now humor me and let me talk about bats for a moment. There are 137 viruses that are known to infect bats. 61 of those are known to be zoonotic. But it's not the number as much as it is the ones that are zoonotically spread by bats. They include Ebola, rabies, Marburg, both SARS and MERS, as mentioned, Hendra and Nipah. And these are very highly, con not contagious, but uh, viruses with a very high CFR. And so the question becomes, is there something unique about bats that allows them to host viruses that are particularly lethal for humans? Two, there are two schools of thoughts for this amongst the scientific community. One thinks that bats are just simply very plentiful, they live for a long period of time, so it's purely a numbers game, that we're going to have a lot of zoonotic spread, and that perhaps bats have um, a number of very dangerous viruses in them. There's another school of thought that thinks that perhaps bats are a good breeding ground for particularly dangerous viruses. So let's take a look and see why that might be the case. Bats can spend up to 20 hours a day sleeping in close quarters that allows for very easy spread of viruses, funguses, and bacteria. Bats have unique mammalian physiology. Their heart rates can range anywhere from 50 to over 1,000 beats per minute. And as a result, they have enormous oxidative stress, generation of free radicals. And during this time frame, they actually exist in a semi-febrile state over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And so these are strategies that humans typically employ to curb viruses as our, part of our immune system as part of normal bat physiology. To overcome this enormous oxidative stress, bats have an increased DNA repair enzymes. And some have postulated this may be why bats can live for upwards of 40 years, which is almost an order of magnitude greater than similarly sized rodent mammals. And interestingly, bats have very unique immunologic responses. 
They have elevated interferon alpha release, and they can have decreased response to this inflammation as well. So when they are infected by a virus, they have enormous interferon alpha release, but they themselves do not have the same systemic effects that we would have when we generate an interferon alpha response. So for example, they don't become, uh, they, don't gener they don't have malaise, they don't have aches or pains as much as we can tell. They really seem to be largely asymptomatic despite this very large interferon alpha release. And they exist in this semi-febrile state just naturally, which means that the viruses that do survive within bats have to be very resilient and they have to be very strong. At least that's what some think. And so the question has become, do bats even get affected by the viruses that they carry? And as an interesting side note, some people think that bats actually don't generate, can't, don't, don't contract cancer, or excuse me, rather don't develop cancer. So then people have started to look at this, and they took recently a bat cell line as well as a simian cell line, the green monkey cells, and what they did was they injected the Ebola virus onto both cell lines to see what would happen. The bat cell line had a very quick interferon alpha response. It walled off the virus, and the remaining cells were in fact intact and safe. The green monkey cell line, which does not have the ability to generate an interferon alpha response, warning other cells about the virus, was quickly eradicated. Now as a disclaimer, humans do have an interferon alpha response, but it is certainly not as robust as that in bats. Now we're going to shift gears and talk about COVID-19. We've all seen these maps, it changes daily. From that start of the infection back in November of 2019, there are now nearly 185,000 cases with over 7,500 deaths worldwide. 159 countries and territories have declared being affected by the virus, though in reality it's probably most reaches of the globe. So what do we know about it? Well, like SARS, it's got an incubation period of approximately 1 to 12 and a half days, with the median being 5 to 6. It is transmitted by droplet particles, and the transmission can either occur from the zoonotic spread of animals to humans or humans to humans. The R-naught is estimated to be 2.28, meaning for every individual infected without quarantining measures, they will infect 2.3 other individuals. And the risk factors for contracting it, as you would expect, they include contact with affected individuals, their respiratory secretions, contaminated surfaces, or contaminated equipment. So what are the signs and symptoms of COVID-19? From the World Health Organization, they show us that most individuals will generate a fever, almost 90% of individuals. Dry cough, fatigue, myalgias, all very common as well. And less, less commonly, but still possible, people can develop nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, and the viral particles can be found in those fluids as well. The advanced stages of the disease include pneumonia, bronchitis, and then ultimately ARDS, cardiomyopathy, and eventual um, cardiac arrest, and additionally renal failure. So what is the prognosis for an individual or a population with COVID-19? Approximately 14% of individuals who contract the disease will develop the viral pneumonia. 5% will require ICU level care. And right now the CFR is estimated to be 2.3%, meaning 2.3 individuals will die in a population who are infected by the disease. The median time until death is approximately 14 days, though there's a wide range from 6 to 41. So who's affected? Just like SARS, 
age seems to be the primary determinant. And those over age 80 have the highest risk for death with COVID-19, nearly 15%. For each decade below 80, we can see decreasing numbers, though most have estimated that the risk over 60 being a real inflection point and cutoff. Those over 60 are much more likely to die from the disease than those below. What about some of our most vulnerable populations, like pregnant women and children? The CDC has not actually come out to state the implications of COVID-19 in women, in pregnant women. However, what we do know from one study, looking at uh, nine infected women in China with COVID-19, we know that all nine women survived, all nine gave birth to healthy infants via C-section, and there was no vertical transmission of the virus to those infants. This is similar to a study with SARS that looked at 10 women who contracted the virus, who also gave birth via C-section, and there was no vertical transmission to those infants. With regard to children and the disease, we know that there are children as young, even under 10 years of age, who can contract the virus. But children seem to be have mild symptoms. They don't seem to be particularly affected. And to my knowledge, there are no deaths in children under the age of 10 from COVID-19. This is very different from influenza, which yearly kills thousands of children worldwide. Additionally, men seem to be disproportionately affected over women by nearly a full percentage point. But one of the interesting parts about the case fatality ratio is that we know that individuals, or excuse me, we, rather, we know that countries who test very aggressively have a lower CFR than countries that don't. And so this now somewhat antiquated chart from The Economist, which comes from March 4th, shows that countries that have poor testing, like the United States, have a much higher CFR than countries like China outside of Hubei province, South Korea, or Singapore, where they've tested a number of individuals. And their CFR is much closer to 0.5 or 0.7, putting it only five or seven times more dangerous than seasonal flu, which has a CFR of 0.1. But the virus is changing rapidly, and already there are two distinct haplotypes of the virus, an L haplotype and an S haplotype. This makes vaccine development, treatment difficult, also has potential implications that individuals could get infected twice by two different strains of the same virus, though that is not known. But we do know that the virus is mutating, and the S haplotype, the new form, which seems to be spreading throughout Europe more readily than the L haplotype, which affected Wuhan, seems to be a little bit less virulent. And so there is hope that the virus, as it spreads, is also becoming less dangerous. Now we're going to talk quickly about preventive strategies, and this is important for every healthcare worker. The World Health Organization reminds you that your hands are the best way to spread germs in a community, and good hand hygiene is the best way to prevent the spread of germs. We have to be cautious of everything we touch, assuming that there are infected infections there waiting to happen. And there are really five times when we need to be diligent about how we clean our hands. Before touching patients, before clean or aseptic procedures, after exposure to bodily fluids, and after touching patients. And then after we leave a patient's surroundings, we need to wash our hands. A breakdown in any of these areas can allow both ourselves and our patients to be harmed by potential infections. The CDC currently recommends droplet, 
contact and N95 mask precautions for patients with COVID for healthcare workers taking care of patients with COVID-19. So this includes gown, gloves, an N95 mask and goggles, or a PAPR, or powered air purifying respirator. The CDC has great instructions on how to both don and doff PPE. And they recommend putting first the gown on, then the mask, followed by face shield, um, and then your gloves ultimately. I would advocate that for those of you who may be intubating patients with COVID-19 to consider double gloving. That way you can remove your contaminated outer gloves after the procedure is performed and yet still remain in the environment without spreading the actual um, viral particles that are most likely on your gloved, outer gloved hands. Doffing PPE can be done one of two ways. You can remove your gloves, then your goggles, then your gown, then your mask, and then make sure you wash your hands. Or if you have disposable gown and gloves, they can come off at the same time before removing eyewear, mask, and then washing your hands. It's interesting to note that this is slightly different from the World Health Organization's recommendation for donning and doffing PPE. The donning portion is the same, making sure that you have gown, eyewear, mask, and gloves. But removing it, they, make, they recommend that you remove your gown and gloves first, wash your hands, and then touch your PPE that's near your face, such as your eyewear and mask. And I think that the World Health Organization's recommendations have good sense here, that we want to make sure that we're washing our hands again before we touch any areas of our hands and face. Now we're going to shift gear and talk about novel treatments for COVID-19. At this point in time, the ultimate treatment is supportive care for the subsequent ARDS and flu-like symptoms that people develop. But there are new medications in the works and vaccines are being developed. You've likely all heard of a medication called remdesivir. Remdesivir is a partnership between Gilead Pharmaceuticals and the NIAID. Remdesivir is an adenosine nucleotide analog. It actually confuses viral RNA polymerases and decreases overall viral RNA production. It was initially designed to actually treat Ebola, and though it's had limited use in actual clinical applications, it had some promising animal studies in both MERS and SARS, and now has been applied to COVID-19. In a paper from the New England Journal of Medicine earlier this year, they had a patient who was admitted Day four developed significant uh, respiratory symptoms, and by day six had developed bilateral patchy infiltrates consistent with the viral pneumonia characteristic of COVID-19. Compassionate use of the medication remdesivir resulted by day eight apparently in dramatic improvement, though no chest x-ray was published that I could see. Other potential treatments include medications like chloroquine, or HIV medications like lopinavir, ritinavir, and China has utilized over 30 different drug candidates, both in vitro and in vivo experiments, to try to determine what can be helpful to mitigate the symptoms of COVID-19. Cautionary tale, chloroquine looked very effective in vitro against a virus such as Zika, but failed to actually demonstrate in vivo response. And so the use of some of these other medications off-label 
uh, need to be uh, cautiously employed and need to be understood that they may in fact not be effective. There are also novel anti-inflammatory medications, anti-rheumatologic medications that can help mitigate cytokine storms, and there's growing use of these in both Italy and China. But what about vaccine development? Because we hear a lot about this in the news. Well, I think vaccine development overall uh, raises some very interesting ethical and philosophical questions about us as a society. When we traditionally talk about vaccine development, we have to talk about viral cultures. These are necessary to grow. They can then be inactivated, um, and they can be trialed in animals, and then um, injected into humans for potential viral immunity. But there are a lot of safety concerns and technical difficulties with culturing these organisms, also by inactivating them or attenuating the effects that we do with live viral vaccines. And so a nonprofit that was formed in 2017 called CEPI, or Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovations, has tried to take a novel approach to vaccine development. And so utilizing recombinant technology, all you need to know is a virus's genome, and then you can use recombinant technology to in fact generate viral proteins which can be utilized for vaccine development. These vaccines utilized or generated by recombinant vaccines, vaccines do tend to have lower immunogenicity, however. And so in a partnership with the private sector, CEPI is working with GlaxoSmithKline, a group that's a leader in what's known as adjuvant therapies. Adjuvants can be inorganic compounds like aluminum salts, or they can even be cytokine adjuvants like interferon gamma, and these enhance the primary antibody response for vaccine development. But even if we are able to generate a vaccine quickly for COVID-19, there are interesting political ramifications to this. We have to ask ourselves, will we expeditiously or will we expedite uh, quick approval of a vaccine for a virus that has a CFR of 2.4%? What if it's 0.5%? For a virus like Ebola, if that had worldwide spread with a CFR of nearly 70%, obviously we'd want to make sure that we had as many individuals vaccinated as quickly as possible. But without understanding the full safety concerns of a novel vaccine, we have to ask, at what level do we expeditiously rush it through our regulatory bodies? Ultimately, this will be a discussion for Congress, for the FDA, and a political discussion. But then worldwide, we have to ask, what happens when individual countries develop vaccines and others do not? Do we let the free market ultimately distribute this vaccine, letting those countries and individuals with health care and with the money to do so receive it? Do countries like Canada or the United States stockpile the vaccine, or do they utilize it in other countries to try to prevent further spread, protecting their own individuals? This has interesting implications if the virus becomes weaponized, and ultimately, we have to ask, how is the most efficient and effective and just distribution of a novel vaccine? Now I'd like to shift gears totally and talk about the global economy. We're all familiar with this. This is what the Dow Jones Index has done recently. The world indices all look very similar. We've seen record low prices in oil. And Beyond this, I think COVID-19 is raising an interesting and new economic picture. 
When we look at standard supply and demand economics in a free market, global supply and global demand will efficiently determine both prices for goods and overall production. And if we think of a macroeconomic picture, the GDP, the gross domestic product, or a rough estimate for a nation's total economic capabilities, we can see here that when there's a downward shift in demand, prices tend to fall and global domestic product also falls. We see this periodically, economic downturns with decreases in demand for goods and services. This is akin to 2008, 2009, uh, akin to the dot-com bust and the Great Depression. And so central banks have really worked hard to develop strategies to try to shift our demand curves back from here, D2 to D1. These involve interest rate cuts, they involve quantitative easing, but with COVID-19, we're seeing the develop of a supply side change. And we haven't seen significant supply, supply side chains for some time. Because of the economic slowdown in China and now the remainder of the world, we can see that with supply side shifts, we actually see a decrease in gross domestic product, but an increase in price. And this gives rise to a period of inflation. And the last time we saw this of any great significance was the 1970s during the period known as stagflation, during the Carter administration during the oil embargo. Economists tend to think that this was an isolated period in America's economic times and that it couldn't be repeated, but we're seeing a disruption to our market supply chains like we've never seen before. And the world is a very different place today. So globalization has become the dominant economic theory for the past 30 years. It's the integration of both local and national economies into an unregulated free market. In large businesses and small businesses, in order to stay competitive in this, they have focused on optimizing their global supply chains with intentions, uh, their attention to efficiency, the cost, and speed, and as a result, they've extinguished all alternate, more expensive supply chains. However, when supply chains become interrupted, the lack of alternatives has potentially huge economic impacts. Let's take a look at SARS and see what the economic impacts of that were. That was in 2004 that we tend to see the economic shift. But you need to understand that the world was very different uh, 16 years ago. The United States was the dominant economy. China was the sixth largest at the time. And even then with SARS, we saw that the countries most affected, China, Hong Kong, Canada, and Singapore, saw a decrease either in their quarterly GDP or their yearly GDP for those that were affected by SARS. When we fast forward towards today's global economic situation, we see that the United States total GDP has shrunk in comparison to the other world economies, and China has now emerged as the world's second largest economy. And those leading sectors in the United States economy are highly reliant on the market supply chains from China. This graphic from The Economist shows that in particular, high-tech industries, pharmaceutical industries, and automotive industries are highly reliant on the market supply chains from China. While there are a number of industries that require, um, excuse me, so 
or companies can have an inventory buffer, a number of days of supply on hand, so that disruptions in supply chain doesn't change their overall production. However, things like the high-tech center, retail and apparel, and retail and apparel may have low inventory buffers, but retail and apparel companies can likely generate new supply chains fairly rapidly. They are not particularly sophisticated, there are a lot of alternatives, and they can be created in short time. High-tech industries, pharmaceutical industries, however, have really spent the last three decades generating highly efficient, highly skilled market supply chains. And generating new ones is going to take significant time. Not one, not two years, but decades. This is one of my favorite slides that looks at pollution in China in mid-January and then in mid-February. And we can see that the Chinese economy has completely shut down. By comparison, you can look at Seoul, South Korea, and you can see that their economy is still moving. And this decreased production in China is going to have worldwide implications. This disruption in market supply chains is going to change, obviously, our own ability to produce in the United States. Deutsche Bank recently came out with an update as to what the effects of COVID-19 were going to be. In February, they thought that the world economy would hum along at around 4% for the year, this gray line here. The U.S. economy would probably stay relatively stable at a 2% growth, and China would experience approximately 5% growth. In February, they thought COVID-19 would cause a small dip in the Chinese and the world economy without significant change in the U.S. economy. A month later, they're now predicting a one or two quarter recession in China, one or two quarter recession in the U.S., and likewise one, two or three quarter recession worldwide. Two weeks on from this now, I think we're in an even different scenario. I think we're looking at potentially a prolonged recession, periods of significant economic downturn, and last week when I gave the talk, I said it would not be as bad as 2008 or 2009, and now I'm not so certain. I don't think we've ever encountered a period of time when we've had such disruptions to our supply chains. And so I think that this is going to be the legacy of COVID-19. Once you and other healthcare workers have effectively either curtailed or contained or mitigated the effects of the virus, our populations come to learn to live and again with a new virus within our society, I think we're going to find that both countries and companies are not going to allow these market supply chains to be disrupted. And so at a time when we have increasing protectionist practices already developing, I think companies like Amazon and Apple are going to make sure that they are not going to rely so heavily on single supply chains. And we're going to see a shift in the economy again generating accessory, less efficient market supply chains, but merely to have the protection so that they can compensate for both natural disasters and viral new viruses such as COVID-19. I think it's going to be a changing world in the next decade. I think the leading economic philosophy for the past 30 years is going to be challenged like it hasn't before. And this will be the legacy of COVID-19. Dr. Jonathan Meserve, thank you so much for bringing that talk. I really appreciate it. It's just absolutely fascinating. I've got a couple of questions for you to kind of round out <clears throat> things. Things have changed dramatically even since last <laughs> Thursday when you gave this talk. Yes. And, and we're speaking on, on a Wednesday, so almost a week later. Um, Not even. 
What, what has surprised you the most as you have delved into COVID-19? You've looked back at SARS, you've looked back at MERS and other pandemics that have broken out in, in history, in recent history, but what has been most surprising about this one? It's not clear to me why COVID-19 has spread the way it has. So when you look at SARS, you look at MERS, um, MERS is not, a, uh, is not a virus that's easily transmitted. So taking that aside, but SARS is probably potentially even easier to transmit than COVID-19 as we understand it today. So why was that contained? Why did that only infect 9,000 individuals? What is different about COVID-19 and the way it spread? Is there an asymptomatic transmission period? Or is the world just simply so much more interconnected in the past decade and a half that the virus has just become rampant? And I think that all of our attempts, these drastic quarantining uh, attempts, have been effective in limiting or slowing the spread of the disease. Decreasing that peak is the popular term these days. But I don't understand why the virus has spread as effectively as it has, as opposed to some of the others that we see. Yeah, yeah. That is quite interesting to think about. I think day by day, the world, healthcare communities and governments are coming to grips, and then therefore uh, general public, are are coming to grips uh, in better terms of just how drastic the measures need to be in terms of social distancing, closure of schools and universities, limiting influx and contact with COVID-19 patients in hospital settings and looking at PPE, uh, personal protective equipment and that kind of stuff around those patients. So I think uh, it's an evolving situation on a daily basis as we both try to understand how to contain the virus, but then also better understand how it's spread. I think that's exactly right. I I think you're going to, as this drags on for longer, we're going to hear a new voice in the community. And that's going to be the question of, is this isolation worth it? And so this is a very, you're already hearing economists talk about it, but the harm that we're doing to ourselves, to our children, and to our populations by disrupting global supply chains may in fact have even a larger detrimental effect than the virus itself. And that's hard to understand. At this point in time, we need to slow the spread of the virus. We need to do these things. But if we all of a sudden get into a situation where millions of Americans don't have access to their pharmaceuticals that are necessary for their health, then we're going to have a lot of associated morbidity and mortality because of those effects as well. If individuals have their ability to purchase food, their ability to eat, their nutritional issues, there are um, certainly economic, significant economic and academic implications to disrupting schools, disrupting early childhood education. Uh, I think that we're going we're gonna to hear more voices about how can we thread this needle of protecting ourselves from a novel virus, but still keep the economy moving such that people can still uh, have a way of life and that people and children can still learn. And uh, I think some of these really interesting things that people have rallied behind very quickly with um, online classes, even for my kindergartner, for example, um, have been really interesting ways that communities are dealing. I'd love to know how communities are going to get food to those um, most affected by this. There are a lot of children in this country that rely on uh, schools for breakfast and lunch. Right. Sometimes that's their only food source for the day. And uh, we need to protect them as well. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. I think the United States, uh, we're on a Wednesday here, took drastic action this Monday, March 16th. 
based upon a report that came out of the Imperial College with the lead author in, in uh, London with the lead author of Neil Ferguson, a well-regarded epidemiologist, that looked at two basic strategies moving forward. One to be mitigation, which speaks to what you're talking about right now. How do we contain uh, the rampant spread of the virus? Um, so what measures can we do aside from doing nothing? Right. Uh, versus a suppression strategy, which is much more aggressive in terms of shutting down schools, universities, all non-essential gatherings, limiting social interaction through social distancing measures for the entire population, not just those at risk. And they've done some very interesting projections in terms of uh, rates of hospitalizations, rates of ICU bed occupancy, and death rates in both Great Britain and the United States. So I may I may talk about that report that came out um, on the 16th, a little bit more in the podcast later, but it talks in general about what you're speaking of right now. What are the projections in terms of ICU beds being overwhelmed in a nation and death rates from a mitigation strategy where life needs to continue along some vein or full suppression where we take this very, very serious approach to uh, limiting social interaction. So, and then what are the implications of both of those strategies on the economy? They did not get into that, but they said either strategy will have severe implications. Uh, the question as to how severe is yet to be known. Right. So I also want to ask you, um, do you think that uh, healthcare systems in the United States are adequately prepared for this pandemic? That is a very tough question. Healthcare systems already in this country were operating at near optimal capacity prior to this. We in our own institution, as you know, have taken drastic steps to make sure that we are ready for the in potential influx of patients that are coming. We don't have good uh, primary care, as you know. We don't have good preventive strategies uh, to prevent sort of generalized scourge diseases within our community. And so how are we going to face a new novel one that is as contagious as this? How are we going to have hospital beds that can care for these patients when we're already at near occupancy of those individuals who have, say, heart failure or cancer? Right. Um, we don't have an overflow system. And so, as you know, in our own institution, we've delayed elective, we've delayed non-urgent emergent cases. Um, and I think delay is the key term here. Because once we've overcome this first hump, there is going to be an enormous wave of individuals who will need cancers resected, right. who need treatments for sleep apnea and other diseases, heart failure, um, cardiac arrhythmias, et cetera. And we are going to have a backlog of cases afterwards. And so while we have made very good steps and strides to prepare for this epidemic. I'm actually kind of most worried about the time afterwards. Right. The remainder of our population has still got an ongoing, highly pressing healthcare need that we have not been very good at delivering to begin with. Right. Once we add on this disruption, how are we going to be able to deliver that? Is going to require more people, more hours. Um, it's going to be a challenge. Yeah. I, I know because of that and because of just fears about uh, COVID-19 and um, becoming ill themselves, many healthcare providers are very worried right now. Mm -hmm. What would you say to healthcare providers out there as they face the daunting challenge that is in front of them in terms of uh, an overwhelmed system, fears of getting personally ill, and how to manage the, the coming weeks? What would be your word of encouragement to healthcare providers? There's an old adage from residency which always says take care of yourself so that you can take care of your patients. So maintaining your own health is going to be key, both spiritual, 
emotional, physical. The basics of PPE, hand washing, good diet, good rest, dealing with stress. I think the news is important. Too much of the news actually can generate more stress. I think you need to have outlets for it. I'm struggling with this, as are you. We all don't know what's coming. It's a very difficult time. Um, but I know that we are all going to have to rise to face this, and it's our responsibility that we will do so. That's a great line. It echoes the themes. I put out a podcast yesterday on stress management for healthcare providers related to the pandemic. So it echoes many of those same themes. I wanted to follow up and ask a more personal question. You're a pediatric anesthesiologist as well as a well-read clinician on the current pandemic, but you're also a father mm-hmm. and a husband. Mm-hmm. So how has this affected your family as you respond to the risk of the disease? My wife is also a physician. She's a pathologist. Uh, so we're both in the hospital, which is probably one of the more dangerous places you could be at this point in time. So um, we are comforted by the fact that we know that children are largely unaffected by this virus. Um, so though we meticulous about trying not to bring it home, I think ultimately that may well happen. Um, it, it's a challenge. How do I discuss the virus with my five and three-year-old? My three-year-old knows the term COVID-19, and when I'm on my phone or I'm on my computer generating a policy, she says, are you working on the virus, Daddy? And this oh my is goodness. That's very, your three-year-old. So it's very much in our common terminology. We're not hiding it from them, and we're also enlisting them to help, hand-washing, hygiene, covering sneezes, covering coughs, things that three and five-year-olds are not very good at doing. Right. Um, but it is a, it's a scary time. I think I'm probably most worried for my parents who mm. are over the age of 70. And so we need to be mindful in how we can protect them. Um, and right. that's everything that we're doing right now is talking about how to prevent them from getting sick, keeping them safe. Right, right. What advice would you give for the healthcare providers who are listening in terms of how we interact as healthcare providers with our friends, family, and other members of the general public who may not have the same perspectives or access to facts as healthcare providers do? Yeah, I think we are fortunate um, and unfortunate to live in such a, a modern globalized time, right? So that's probably what pro- helped propagate the spread of this virus. But it means that information is available, both good and bad. And so I think it's important to direct family members, to direct friends, to very reliable sources of information. That's the World Health Organization, the CDC at this point in time, um, your local state CDC, all very helpful in providing good, accurate information, how you can keep yourself healthy, how you can prevent the spread of the disease, okay? Um, I heard someone say on NPR today that this is also an opportunity for you to talk frankly with your loved ones about how much you love them. Because this is going to be a delicate time moving forward. We don't have. We're not going out and golfing at this point in time. Uh, I'm not a golfer, sorry. So <laughs> but uh, we're not doing out and doing the normal things that we would normally do. So yep. let's take this opportunity to focus on what's important to us, both individually, as a nation, and let's try to let's try to bring some good from this scenario as best we can. Yeah, that's great. In closing, is there anything else that you want to say as we sound off on COVID nineteen at this point in time? Be safe. We will get through this. We just need to be smart. and We need to listen to experts at this point in time. Thank you for letting me talk to you. Yeah. Well, Jonathan Meserve, thank you so much. I really appreciate you contributing your expertise on the topic and look forward to getting this out uh, to the community as soon as possible. All right. Thank you, John.